The following audio is from Hope Hill Church. To learn more about Hope Hill Church, please visit hopehillchurch.org. What we're dealing with today is two miracles um, and two very famous miracles. Even if you haven't really done much church in your life, a lot of people know these miracles. Uh, this miracle is so uh, popular for a couple reasons. One, it's one of only two that appears in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first one, and the biggest, most important miracle, if you if you could say that about miracles, is Jesus dying on the cross and his resurrection. That would be the greatest, I believe, of all miracles. And uh, that's in all the Gospels. And then today's uh, sign or miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. So we're going to get into that today. We're going to pull it apart, look into some deeper truths. What is this story all about? None of the stories in the Bible are standalone stories. Every story is a part of a grander story. From cover to cover, we are being invited into a deeper love relationship with God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the book of John that we're studying right now as a church is written so that you will believe that Jesus is God, that he is your Messiah, and that you would invite him in to be your Savior. And so our hope is that you would do so. Today, let's look at the reading and we'll break it apart. I'm going to start by just kind of reading it to us. Pausing here and there, but let's start. John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. I want you to circle large crowd. If you take notes in your Bible, I want you to circle saw the sign. This is a repeat. Uh, We keep seeing it in the book of John. Every time Jesus does a miracle, um, there's going to be seven we're going to see in the book of John. John, the bath, John, the gospel writer, the apostle John, writes the word sign. We pointed out that signs have a purpose. Nobody really builds a sign just for the sake of building a sign. They're meant to tell you where to go or to point a direction or to promote something. Um, they don't just get created just so you'd say, hey, guys, check out my sign. In the same way, Jesus didn't just do signs for the sake of signs. Signs always point to a deeper meaning, a deeper purpose. The story, the feeding of the 5,000 is a sign pointing us to something deeper. The large crowds came because they saw the sign. Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down with his disciples. There are two crowds here today. We've got the big crowd and the intimate crowd. We've got the onlookers, and we've got the intimate disciples. There are lessons here for all of us. There are lessons here for the large crowd that's gathered. There are specific lessons for the small group of disciples that are gathered. He sat down with his disciples. Now, I want you to circle this next phrase, verse 4. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This is the context for the entire set of unfolding events. Everything that Jesus is about to do is intentional. Nothing in scripture is by coincidence. This is the second Passover that we see in Jesus's ministry years. The first one we saw from a couple chapters ago, a year has passed. This is the second Passover. There's going to be a one more Passover, the third Passover that we're going to see in the book of John, in the life of Jesus. And that is the Passover where Jesus lays down his life as the sacrificial lamb for the sake of the world. Each Passover was a primary holiday 
day when all who could, all pilgrims, all Jews, all who respected the Jewish faith would travel to Jerusalem to worship God. And Jesus chooses these times to perform and to put up important signs saying, everything you're worshiping, everything you're celebrating, everything that's going on around Passover, it is not about what you see, what you do. It is about me. It's all about me. We're going to see that unfold more today. The Passover of the Feast of the Jews was at hand. Circle that. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that the large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, now this is where they are, is uh, near Philip's hometown. We see that from chapter 1. So he turns to Philip. Philip might know where to go to take care of the need that Jesus is seeing. Jesus turns to Philip and says, where are we going to buy bread? Where's the local Costco? Because they're going to need a lot of bread. So that these people may eat. And he said this to test him. Does Jesus test people? Hello? How many of you are being tested right now? Jesus, help me. Anybody feel that way today? Jesus does test us. To test them, he asked Philip, where are we going to go to buy the bread? Philip answered, Jesus, you don't get it. You don't understand. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed all of those that are here. They would barely get any. 200 denarii, how much is that? A denarii was a wealthy person's daily wage. 200 days wage. That was basically a year's salary. Philip is saying, Jesus, if the richest man in town were to show up and give you his last year's earnings, we still wouldn't have enough to feed the crowd that's here today. I wonder if Philip has forgotten who he's talking to. 200 denarii would not be enough. Verse 8, one of the other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, look at this. There's a boy here, and he has five barley loaves and two fish. But what is that with so many here? You hear what just happened? Andrew loses his faith mid-sentence. First of all, he comes over here, he steals this kid's Lunchable, and he brings it over to Jesus and says, Jesus, check this out. Never mind. What what can this do? The awesome thing that we see here is Jesus is always about, take what you think is not enough and let me be enough. Give me what you think you don't have, and I will do what you can't do with what you don't have. This is the story that Jesus invites us into today. And it doesn't matter how much faith you have. It's it's who you have your faith in. How much faith is required for someone to lose faith halfway mid-sentence? The Bible talks about if you have faith as a mustard seed. How many of you have ever seen a mustard seed? I wish I would have. I I bought a souvenir jar of mustard seeds while we were in Israel. And... uh, would have been cool if I actually wouldn't have been able to see him if I would hold one up. But imagine I have a mustard seed, smaller than a sunflower seed, really small. And yet the scripture says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Don't be discouraged. I know there are many times we doubt 
we feel like our faith is weak, that Jesus can do so much with even just a little. That's, that's not really the point today, but I just wanted to say that. One of the disciples, Andrew, said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, go ahead and have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so when the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, some scholars will say that, I mean, it's, it's typically the men that were counted. You aren't necessarily seeing their spouses or members of their household or their children. 5,000 is a huge number, though. Anybody agree? Anybody ever fed 5,000? I wouldn't be shocked if somebody said, yeah, yeah, we did it last week. 5,000 is huge, but it's very likely that the crowd is bigger. Maybe 10, 12, maybe even 15,000. That's a big crowd. Jesus says, have them sit down. There were 5,000 there. Jesus then took the loaves that Andrew brought over. And when he had given thanks, praying to the Father, he then distributed them to those who were seated and also the fishes. And everyone got as much as they wanted. You know how Jesus makes makes food often. Look at John chapter 21. His disciples come in. They've brought fish, but Jesus says, hey, you want breakfast? Breakfast. And it's there. Can you imagine how good these filet of fish sandwiches must have tasted this day? Made by Jesus. Could you imagine the awe and, and, and the feeling of wonder on the disciples' faces as they're given these baskets from Jesus. Andrew just gave them a lunchable for all things, and Jesus turns it into enough to feed the masses. It doesn't end there. Jesus took the loaves, he had them distributed. Verse 12, when they had eaten their fill, it wasn't just snack time at VBS, everybody got enough to be full. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, now go and pick up the leftovers. Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up and filled how many baskets? How many? How many disciples are there? Do you think that's just, wow, that's kind of coincidence. Do you think so? There's no coincidence in the Bible. So what's this about? We don't know exactly, but what I like to think is that Jesus didn't want any of them, any of them missing out on the amazement of how awesome he is. He could have easily just said, hey, Peter, Andrew, will you go collect up the leftovers? But there was enough for each disciple to go back into the crowd, and each disciple came back with their own basket of food. There's a whole bunch of other stuff we could say there, but Jesus doesn't want any of us feeling left out. When the people saw the sign, what'd they see? They aren't seeing the Savior. What the people keep seeing in story after story, in this ongoing unfolding story, is we've got these sign seekers. We've got these people who are not chasing after the Savior. They're wanting the next sign. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, capital P, in most of our translations. This is referring back to their understanding. You remember, what, what, what's the time of year? What time of year is it? This is the backdrop for this entire set of unfolding events. These people have pilgrimed in. They, are, they have, have gone through their duties at the temple, most likely. 
They're in town. They're aware of the stories of old. They're aware of the Passover celebration uh, where, where the Israelites were, were slaves in Egypt, where Moses was sent to be God's mouthpiece. This is their identity. This is who they are. We made it. We were slaves, and our God set us free. Moses was our champion. He came in, and he battled with Pharaoh. And at the end of all the plagues, there was the great Passover. God sent this angel. The angel was going to pass over every household. And for those who believed in God, they took a lamb. They sacrificed the lamb. They took the blood of the lamb. They put it on the posts. And the the angel passed over, leaving those families safe ready to deliver them and all those who didn't believe, who didn't obey, who didn't have the blood of the lamb covering them for protection, they lost their firstborn child. This was their background. This was their heritage. This is going on. They've been singing the songs in celebration, remembering back, and Jesus decides this to be the time and place. And he says, here's your sign to point to the Passover. There is a lamb. The book of John chapter 1 said that Jesus is the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. You're celebrating the Passover lamb from thousands of years ago. I am the lamb standing in your midst. You, your ancestors took the blood of the sacrifice lamb and they put it on doorposts. My blood will be shed for you and will be placed on a post. And all who follow after it will believe and be saved. Jesus is not by circumstance doing this day in this way, just by coincidence. There is intentionality unfolding here completely, and they see it so much so that a group of zealots lived in this area. There were a number of Jewish religious elite. There were the Pharisees and Sadducees who we see uh, often in the scriptures. There were a group of uh, Israelites called the Essenes, and there's another group called the Zealots. And they were kind of like the religious uh, activists, almost like the ISIS of the day. They wanted the Roman Empire demolished. They wanted it done immediately. And now many, I'm sure, are present in this gathering. They're looking on, and they are seeing the signs that Jesus is unfolding. And they're thinking about Deuteronomy 18. When Moses, where it was prophesied that a prophet from among you will come forth and produce signs and will become your king. And they're like, this is him. We've got to do it. It's time to take out the Romans. And so um, they are ready to do it. Verse 15, perceiving, this is Jesus perceiving, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We keep seeing Jesus do these signs. The crowds get riled up. Jesus withdraws quietly. Why? We're told in John chapter 1, John chapter 2, that Jesus knew what was in their hearts. They didn't want a savior. They wanted a sign maker. They wanted a king. Not someone to set them free spiritually, but someone to set them free so that they could live life how they wanted to live it. They weren't after the gift. They were after the gift, not the giver. They were after the wonder, not the worship. They were after the signs and not the Savior. And so Jesus withdraws. 
We're going to read 16 through 21 in a minute, but I want to pull a couple more things out of this first part, this first miracle. You see, what's beautiful about this is that there are two crowds. The first crowd is full of onlookers, full of skeptics, full of people wondering, is this, maybe they had heard about some of the miracles that had been occurring here and there, and they wanted to see for themselves. They were curious people. And Jesus doesn't rebuke any of them. He doesn't send them away. Instead, other gospels that write this same miracle tell us a couple things. One tells us that Jesus looked at them as sheep without a shepherd. Another one describes the emotion that he was feeling. He looked at them with compassion. The word compassion in the New Testament is spagnizomehi. It's this, it's this word to capture uh, uh, an urging, a pain in your gut. We get the word spleen from it. How many of you say, I love you from the bottom of my spleen? It's pretty common. That's what's going on here. Jesus is feeling, he knows they're lost. He sees their brokenness. He sees their hurting. He knows they're hungry and he knows they're spiritually hungry. And he is broken for them. For God so loved the world, not just those who would love him back. God loved the world and he loves this crowd. There are two crowds here this day. There's the crowd, the onlookers, the, the, the large crowd, and there's the crowd of the disciples. And Jesus loves them both equally. I was on the phone this past week with, with someone who, I have to be careful what I say, just out of confidentiality, but they were, they were describing to me the hurts and pains in their life and how they've tried to, find and fill that hurt and that pain in so many ways and nothing seems to be satisfying. Feeling deeply spiritual all their lives and believing that Jesus is a good healer. I listened and I just said, God, help me understand where this person's coming from. This person said, I'm spiritual. I'm a a good, healthy person. I'm moral but I'm dealing with some things in my life that I just need freedom from. Can you just tell me, is it true? Do you believe that that the Jesus you worship can set me free? Do you believe that your Jesus can be a healer in my life? My heart was just broken because what I was hearing was this person just wanted one more God on their list, one more spiritual figure to add to a list, hoping that something else would be added to their life. And so I just had to lovingly say, I don't want to offend you, but I've been listening to you. But what I believe you're saying is the reason you're hurting. I believe that Jesus is not just a healer, but the only healer. I believe that all the spiritual things you've been seeking life in have opened up doorways for the enemy to bring evil into your life. I explained that if life is a hallway and Jesus is the last door, that there is an enemy like a roaring lion in the middle of that hallway, and he doesn't care what door you go through as long as he keeps you out of that last door. Some doors may be called witchcraft and 
things that look evil, but some doors will just say being a good soccer mom or being the best dad or having a good career. And, and, and Satan does not care which door you pursue with your life as long as he keeps you out of that last door. And you've been looking for hope and healing in every door available to you and seeing Jesus is just another door. But he is the only door. And I believe you will not find true healing. I, will not, I believe you will not try to find true hope until you're willing to say to yourself, there is nothing else that can meet my needs but you, Jesus. I come to you not just for healing, not just for a sign, but I want you to be my savior. As part of the conversation, she said, John, are you telling me that I have to believe that Jesus is better than God? He said, no, you have to believe that Jesus is God. He is God become flesh. Not just another God, not just another healer. He is the only way. She said, I want to believe that. And I, 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 I paused. I was like, what do I do with this person who, in my own putting the pieces together, I feel like she's just looking for healing. She's not really looking for Jesus, the Savior. And I just heard the Holy Spirit say, lead her to me. Let me deal with So I shared with her the gospel. I shared with her that I believe that that Jesus, I shared with her the passage last week that was so perfect. Jesus saying, I'm not just another. I am God. I am life. I bring judgment. And I am here to be your healer and your Lord. I said, Jesus wants to be your healer and your Lord. And if you call out to him and believe in him with your heart, and confess him as Lord, that he will come in and he will make you his child. We ended that phone call praying together. I pray that the Holy Spirit leads her in fuller understanding of who he is. This crowd broke Jesus' heart. They didn't understand fully who he was, but he still met them where they were. And even though all they're wanting is their hunger, their physical hunger met, he meets it, hoping that they will see a deeper understanding of who he is. I'm not just here to give you bread. Next week we're going to hear him say, I am that bread. The Passover is the backdrop. They know the stories of Moses in the wilderness. And I'm sure some of them are even sitting in the crowd, remembering the stories that they had just celebrated with their family members, the retelling of how the Israelites were led through the wilderness and how they were hungry and how all of a sudden God opened up the heavens and manna fell. And now all of a sudden they're receiving bread from heaven. But not all of them are going to get it. Actually, the majority of them won't get it. By the next day, next week, we'll visit this part of the story. They're going to follow Jesus, and Jesus is going to say, are you really looking for me, or are you just looking for me because yesterday you had your fill of me? In chapter 1, Jesus said, here's the invitation. Just come. Come and see what my life is like. Come and see the things that I will show you. Next week, For this crowd, the invitation a year later is going to go a step deeper. 
from come and see to come and eat my flesh. The crowd is going to say, whoa, 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 this is kind of crazy. And many, and, and it's been said, when you get to know Jesus for who he really is, one of two things will happen. You will either be drawn closer in or you will turn and go away. And we're going to see John chapter 6, verse 66 next week. John 666, kind of a scary number. Read the verse. And many of the disciples turned and left him never to follow again. That's what the verse says. Most of the crowd is going to turn and leave Jesus, and Jesus is going to turn to the few, maybe the 12 that are left, and he's going to say to them, okay, are you too about to leave? Peter's going to say, there's nothing in this world that even compares to what we have. We have nothing else to leave to go to. We're in. And then at the third Passover that we're going to see in a few months maybe from now, he's going to lay down his life. And the invite is going to go from come and see to come and eat my flesh and drink of my blood to come and die want to find full life in me, die to your sin, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. Let's go to the second part of this story for today. So he's fed the crowd. He slipped away because they wanted to take him and seize him and make him their king, not not their savior. And Jesus slips away. Again, this story is told in some of the other accounts in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, we know that Jesus is dealing with some painful stuff this day. One, the pain of the hurt that he's feeling of this crowd not seeing him for who he really is. But on a deep personal level that I can't even begin to understand, Jesus just got news, according to Matthew chapter 14, that his cousin, John the Baptist, who was arrested and imprisoned by Herod, Jesus just got word that they just executed him. So Jesus is dealing with the hurt of the crowd. They're not seeing him for who he is. And he's dealing with the news that I just lost a dear loved one. He knew it was coming. There's no surprise to Jesus, but still Jesus hurts in the same way we hurt. And he withdraws to be alone. And he sends the disciples, you guys head on home to Capernaum. I'm going to go spend some time alone on the mountain with my father. And he withdraws to pray. And they head out to sea. Now again, nothing in Scripture is happenstance or circumstance or coincidence. Everything is planned. And the next thing is a deeper lesson for the disciples. According to Mark chapter 6, I believe 51 or 52, what is about to happen, Jesus allows to happen. Because they did not understand the miracle of the bread, it says. Look at what happens. John six sixteen. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and they got in a boat and they started across the sea of Capernaum. Now, bodies of water, especially large bodies of water. And for those of you that had a chance to go, you saw the Sea of Galilee. It was awesome to be out on it, but I would not want to be uh, in a boat that they were probably the size of the boat they were in during a storm on that big body of water. And yet that's where Jesus sends them. This isn't just a storm that just 
comes up and Jesus is like, oh no, it's storming. I got to get back to my buds. Jesus sends the storm. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the water, although they did not know it was him. It doesn't say that there, but if you read in Mark and you read in Matthew, the other accounts of the same story, they saw a ghost and fearful for their life. The seas are raging, the waves are huge, the wind is blowing. They think, oh man, Jesus isn't with us. It's the end. And oh no, a ghost is coming to usher us to death. The book of Mark tells us that Jesus even passes by them. What is that all about? Jesus will often test us with storms in our life. And don't think that he is not there. He is in the midst of every storm with us. He was up on the mountain. He was dealing with things from the morning ahead. He had sent them off to be tested, but he was with them all along. Mike Conley believes that Jesus is a Trekkie because he believes that Jesus teleported from the mountain to the sea. I mean, if you were Jesus, would you really take the time to walk all the way down that mountain in a storm? Wouldn't you just teleport if you could? Come on, guys, that's kind of funny. So, Jesus all of a sudden appears on the sea. The disciples are freaking out. They think they're going to die. Once they even see Jesus, they don't even recognize it's him, according to the other Gospels, until Jesus gets close enough. They were frightened. But he said to them, and you can kind of see that they didn't know it's him because he has to identify himself. Verse 20. He said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately catch that? Storming. We're going to die. There's a ghost. It's I, guys. Oh, good. Come on in. Immediately, they're home. The boat was at land to which they were going. What do we do with this as we wrap up? We We see two crowds here. Earlier in the day, we saw a crowd who wanted to see Jesus for the provisions that he could bring. They didn't see him as Savior or Messiah. They saw him as the sign performer, as the gift giver. And here we have the second crowd, the disciples, who believe he is the Messiah, the Christ, but they do not believe in the provision that he can bring. They're afraid for their life. We finally died. If you read the account in Mark, it actually gets to a point where they're like out there so long that they look down and say, oh man, we forgot to bring the leftovers. We only have one loaf of bread with us. What are we going to do? And they're still doubting. I believe this story is here to show us that Jesus is willing to step on our deepest, darkest fears and walk right over them. In Jewish culture, the ocean was a symbol of fear and a symbol of death. It wasn't like the oceans we run to for vacation and look at and just stand in awe of their beauty. The oceans were a place of fear, was a place of death. Many would go out to the ocean and never return. 
That's why the, the, the John writes in Revelation, in heaven there will be no more sea. A symbol of, of, of fear that will be wiped away. Jesus, I believe, wants them to see. And according to Mark, they didn't quite understand the miracle that had happened earlier. So Jesus is testing them again. And he's allowing them to go through this struggle to see that even in your most deepest, darkest fear, I am with you. And when you see me, I will immediately bring you to safety. I will immediately be there to give you hope. Even when everything else seems to be falling apart. I am with you. Your fears mean nothing to me. Even they obey me. Another story, we see him in the, in the boat during the storm. And he speaks and the wind and waves immediately cease. Jesus is not worried about our fears, but our fears, they have a way of creeping in. They have a way of keeping us from from doing what it is that God wants us to do. There are fears that creep into our churches, things that make us feel anxious, the the things that, that pop up in our culture. We've had families visit our church, and one of their first questions is, my son or daughter is struggling with homosexuality. In this day and age, what do you as a church believe about this very central cultural issue? And have to share out of love that I believe in the God of the Bible and I believe that homosexuality is a sin. But I believe that God can meet you in the midst of your struggle, that each of us, I'm born with sin in my life. Each and every one of us, none of us, my, my sin is not, your, your, your sin is not greater than mine. We stand equal at the foot of the cross. We are both sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus can meet you in the midst of any struggle, in the midst of any confusion. And he can bring hope, and he can bring light, and he can bring love. We have churches that are struggling with this issue, churches that are dividing and new denominations that are forming because we don't know what to do with sexuality in this day and age. But the answer is in the God who made sex. We have a God who made man and woman and a God who made the family. And that if that's offensive, I'm sorry that you're offended, but I have to share with you the truth because that's what God has called me to do. And we love you. If you believe differently, we still love you. And we want to walk through life with you and help you find Jesus in the midst of it all. I believe the Holy Spirit has the power to do what none of us can imagine in the midst of every situation, in the midst of every storm. And then when it comes to politics, a couple years ago, when the uh, who's Hope Hill supporting? Who are we to be regardless of whoever is sitting at the throne? Who are we to be regardless of who gets nominated president? In the midst of a culture where evangelism is seen as offensive, we talked about this last week. There was an article in Christianity Today where millennials, and by the way, millennials aren't kids. I, I had my thoughts corrected. I was reading the study. Millennials are up to age 37 now. So many of us thought the millennials would be the end of the world. Everything would, like, stop working and fall apart. But they're buying houses and having kids and driving cars. They made it. In this article, millennials were quoted saying 
that they believe it is ethically wrong for Christians to try to convince other peoples of other faiths that Jesus is the only way. And that same group of people who answered that way, 94% of them said that they believed that Jesus was the best thing in their life. He's the best thing in our life, but we don't want to offend you, so we won't tell you about him. You tell us about a lot of other things you care deeply about, like essential oils, and you're diffusing that all over the place. About your organic ways of healing, about what foods to eat and don't eat. You don't care who you offend with your thoughts on those issues, but when it comes to Jesus, let's be quiet. We've allowed fear to creep in and distract us and to keep us from the mission. And Jesus is the one to say, I will walk on top of every fear. Keep your eyes on me and I will be there with you. He is there to be with us at all times and all places to help us conquer every fear. We're going to hold the rest for next week.